0: Men, you can be seated. And now, Father, we come to your word, and we praise you. Lord, that you have taken this complicated issue of marriage, divorce, and remarriage, a subject about which the world swirls around us with opinions and ideas and false ideologies, and you, in one book, cut through all of the mire and confusion with clear teaching from your spirit clear and infallible and sufficient for everything we need and so father i pray now that you would give us ears to hear for if you don't do that work in us we will be dull and unable to receive what your spirit has to say to his people and so change us father by this time i pray that every person here will have their minds intentionally engaged and their hearts intentionally set aflame for the Lord Jesus Christ, to obey him, to love him, to serve him, and to live a life that's pleasing to him, whether they be single, whether they be divorced, whether they be divorced and remarried, or whether they be happily engaged in a marriage that is pleasing both to you and to them. May all of us come away having been challenged and changed by this, your book, and so we give you praise for it in the name of our Savior Jesus, amen. Turn with me in your Bible to Matthew chapter 19, and we're still warming up to 1 Corinthians 7, which we will cover almost in its entirety uh, in one message, Lord willing, which will happen in two weeks. I will be out next week, uh, and Brent will be preaching in my place, and uh, so next Sunday Brent will preach, and by Monday there will be revival. I know how this works. Um, <laughs> So you all come and be blessed as, as Brent picks back up in the Sermon on the Mount where he left off. Well, I've given you enough time now. We are in Matthew chapter 19. In Matthew 19, we are in Matthew 19 because Paul is going to speak to us in 1 Corinthians 7 about what the Lord has taught about this issue. And so it's imperative for us to understand what the Lord actually said And so last week, we got into Matthew chapter 19, and this morning, I'd like to do that again, and let's stand together and read this text as a congregation. Let's stand together. Matthew chapter 19. If you have the New American Standard Bible, just follow along with me, and we'll pick up with verse 3, and we will um, read through verse 7. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Whatever therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And they said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not, has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. You can be seated. In the past couple of weeks, we've been... We've learned several things about God's perspective on divorce and remarriage. First, we've learned that in the beginning, God created, when God created human beings, he created only two of them. Now, we kind of get the sense in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 that when he created the animals, he created many of each kind. He really filled the earth with the birds and the fish of the sea and, and uh, the animals And there were many males and many females, but when it came time to create man, he created one man, and out of that man, woman. And so there were two, and this is crucial to Jesus' argument. The Pharisees are trying to find a loophole to justify their marrying and divorcing and marrying and divorcing and marrying and divorcing. And Jesus says, listen, the way God created it wasn't supposed to be that way, and that is self-evident by the fact that when he created man, he only created two, a man and a woman. There were no other options. Furthermore, the two would be joined together with a bond so strong that they would be considered by God no longer two people, but one flesh. In fact, the word uh, cleave, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife is the key word here, to bond, to glue together. It's a strong bond, a strong union, a one flesh relationship. Third, we learned that the marriage and everything that went into it would be a work of God. And surely no one would want to interfere with something that God had done. And so Jesus concludes in Matthew uh, Matthew 19, verse 6, by saying, what therefore God has joined together Let no man divorce. And so the marriage uh, is a work of God. Every marriage is a work of God. And we need to see it that way. And we talked about that last time. When you start getting into difficulty in your marriage, understand that God gave you that woman, God gave you that man, and you are to do your best to work it out. Walking in the spirit, applying the word of God, seeking counsel when necessary, but doing everything that is dependent upon you to bring peace to that relationship. The Pharisees, however, were not set back by Jesus' answer. They simply mounted an assault in a different front. They asked, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? And so Jesus responds by explaining that God never meant for a married couple to be divorced. You weren't supposed to be able to get into a marriage and get out of it. Get into a new one, get out of it. Get into a new one and get out of it. That was never God's design. So Jesus responds. They go back to Deuteronomy. Jesus goes all the way back to Genesis and says, when when Moses commanded you, uh, Moses never did command them to give a divorce or to divorce their wives. So Jesus goes all the way back and shows in the Old Testament in Genesis what God's original plan was. And then we saw in the last book of the, New- of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, where God clearly says, I hate divorce. And thank you for those of you who sent me responses on the homework assignment last week I gave you. How many times does God say, I hate? And what are the subjects? And it was interesting to read how God hates sin and God hates immorality. But there are very few statements where God says, I hate but one of the things that God hates is divorce. He never commands anyone divorce. He simply permitted divorce in some cases because of their hardness of heart. They were unwilling to do the right thing when the marriage became unpleasant. The reality is God's attitude about divorce has always been the same. The only thing that changed was the law, the Old Testament law, which demanded execution Upon the person who committed adultery outside of their marriage, committed sexual sin, Jesus calls it fornication, which kind of sums up all sexual sin, and, and the law originally required that that person who was found to have engaged in sexual sin outside of marriage, that because they violated their covenant union with their spouse, they were to be executed. But by the finishing of the law, Moses had, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, given permission to divorce. And we talked about this last week, but let me just review. The purpose of the divorce was to bring grace to bear upon the sinful, uh, the, the couple that was sinning against one another or one person sinning against the other. And here's what I mean by that. The person who should have been executed, God now gives grace and allows for divorce instead. It is grace to the person who should have died, it is also grace to the person who is the aggrieved party, the one who has been sinned against, because they no longer have to be bound by covenant in that relationship where the other person is living in a lifestyle of unrepentant sexual sin. You understand that? So remember, there are two ways to get out of a marriage biblically one was by death, the other one was by execution, which is death. And so the only way out of marriage was by death. But Moses, again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, allowed for divorce because of their hardness of heart. These guys, they would, here's what they would do. When they had a problem in their marriage, they would throw out the divorce card. They'd say, listen, I'm not going to kill you for burning the bagels, but I am going to divorce you. And they were just using it for every little thing. And Jesus was correcting that. The reality is God's attitude about divorce has never changed. The only thing that changed was the law under Moses to bring grace both to the sinner and to the one who would have been bound to that sinner for the rest of their life if God had not made an allowance so that the other person wouldn't die. And so you see, Jesus' answer simply affirms what the law of God had always said. No divorce. No divorce. Except for in this one instance where the law... Otherwise, it would have required death. And the only exception to that is what Paul will tell us in 1 Corinthians 7. And, but we're not in Paul right now. We're in Jesus' teaching. And we'll see Paul's teaching on this in just a couple of weeks. And by the way, this would be a really good place to talk about what marriage is and what it is not. Because in the church and outside the church, there is a false idea that marriage uh, happens... Whenever two people engage in the physical uh, union, uh, engaging in physical intimacy with one another, we need to understand marriage does not happen when a man and woman have an intimate physical relationship. That is not marriage. When two people get together before they're married and let loose the reins of physical intimacy, that is not called marriage in the Bible. That's called sin in the Bible. And it is something to be repented of, but it doesn't create marriage and nor does it of itself dissolve marriage. Marriage is more than physical union. It is much more than a physical union. And so what is marriage? A marriage a real marriage in God's eyes begins with a man and woman who vow to one another before God witnesses and each other that they will be faithful to one another and care for one another and love one another exclusively until they are separated by what? Death. Not displeasure, not unhappiness, not um not being compatible not having financial problems, not in-law issues, none of that stuff, they would stay together. And again, on its face, that was God's implication when he created one man and one woman. I mean, you think Adam and Eve didn't have problems? They had problems as soon as God confronted them, and Adam said, the woman you gave me, it's her fault. Uh, Now we've got a marriage issue. Now we've got marriage problems. But you know what? They couldn't go anywhere else. There weren't any other men. There weren't any other women. They had to work that out. And that's the way God wants us in our marriages. He wants us to bring the word of God to bear on whatever those issues are and to work it out. Two people walking in the spirit will be able to get along. Now, All of this is to say that marriage is more than a physical union. Marriage is a covenant, and we see that in a couple of places in the Bible. If you go back to Matthew chapter 1, just flip a few few pages back, a few chapters back. Matthew chapter 1, and you will recognize this as the Christmas story, beginning with verse 18, and here's what we read now, Matthew 1, 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows, when his mother Mary had been betrothed, betrothed, to Joseph, before they came together, that's physical union, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And of course, at that point, Joseph is thinking adultery. She's broken the covenant. And Joseph, her husband, being righteous, a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. Um, send her away here means Divorce. And that's exactly what we're seeing. In fact, the word here is apaluo. It's the same word that Jesus uses, apaluo, that's translated for us, divorce or to separate. And so the point is, in their relationship, they had not known one another in a physical way. They hadn't engaged in any physical intimacy, but they had covenanted to one another. They had been bound in what the Old Testament um, uh, way of doing this was betrothal. This was not dating. This was not courtship. This was covenant. This was a covenant with one another. And it was legal. In God's eyes, they were married. And yet, they had not had any physical intimacy. They were married, they were betrothed to one another in a legal and spiritual way, but they had not had any physical intimacy. We see this again in Malachi chapter 2, verse 14, where God explicitly calls uh, the marriage between uh, the man and the wife that he was referring to, when he refers to the, the wife of your youth, with whom you have entered covenant. This is a covenant relationship. And so the physicality of the relationship of marriage is important. It's necessary. Paul will explain that it's a duty for married couples to fulfill one another's desires. Yes. And we'll get to that when we get to the appropriate place in 1 Corinthians. But here we need to understand that marriage is a covenant. All the physical stuff comes under that covenant, but the marriage itself is a covenant. It is not formed by a physical union. And it is not broken by um, a, a sinful union with someone else. It is more than that. And so this is what we learn. Marriage is not a physical act, but a formal covenant between a man and a woman. To each be the other's companion as long as they both shall live. Now, why is this important? Well, it's important because this is what the Bible teaches. It's also important because some will say that when one spouse commits sexual sin, that sin actually creates a new marriage. And that's not the case. But this kind of thinking is nowhere in Scripture. When a spouse is found to have engaged in sexual sin outside the marriage, divorce is neither assumed, nor implied, nor commanded. God does not command that the covenant be broken, but rather that the husband and wife seek repentance and reconciliation to restore the joy of intimacy, which Mary's was designed to have. sometimes that restoration doesn't happen because of sin, but it should happen, and it can happen with two believers. We saw that in... Uh, In the marriage of Hosea last week, you remember that? that? That very stirring story of Hosea, who is married to Gomer, his wife, who became blatantly unfaithful to her husband, just as Israel was blatantly unfaithful to God. Nevertheless, Hosea kept pursuing her and pursuing her and pursuing her. And she continued in her sin and continued in her sin and continued in her sin. But he refused to break his covenant of marriage with her. And in the end, he ultimately purchased her off the auction block, being sold as a used and abused slave who was worth nothing to anyone. And he buys her back. And this is God's perspective on what a marriage covenant should be like. And so all of this is simply to point out that marriage and divorce are much bigger issues than the physical sins associated with adultery and fornication. Marriage is never to be entered into lightly, and divorce is only available as a last option. And in Jesus' teaching, only when there has been unrepentant, unrelenting sexual sin. Now, someone may say, If God's pattern is to seek reconciliation until the bitter end and never seek divorce, how is it that divorce can be an option biblically? I mean, clearly Jesus is saying there is at least one. We'll see the other one in Paul. But he's saying there's at least one time when divorce is allowable by God. So if God hates divorce, why then? How can we justify when it, how how can there be a biblical justification for it from time to time? Well, there are at least two answers to that. One is that Jesus' teaching clearly permits divorce in the case of unrepentant sexual sin. Hence, he says remarriage remarriage after an unbiblical divorce is the equivalent of adultery, unless the former spouse has been found guilty of fornication. And secondly, and this is is really interesting and important in our understanding of divorce and remarriage. Um, It may be shocking to think about this But even though God was patient with Israel, he did eventually divorce her. God eventually did divorce Israel. He pursued her like Hosea pursued Gomer for 700 years. 700 years pleading with her, calling her to repent, doing everything to bring about reconciliation. In fact, Jeremiah 3, 6 through 9, this is what we read. And then the Lord said to me in the days of Josiah the king, have you seen what faithless Israel did? She went up on every high hill and under every green tree, and she was a harlot there. And I thought, after she has done all these things, she will return to me. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. And I saw that for all the adulteries of faithless Israel, I had sent her away. And given her a writ of divorce. Remember the northern kingdom of Israel and then the southern kingdom of Judah? God preserved Judah by sending her to Babylon. But her sister Israel, God divorced. He destroyed that land, he scattered those people, never to return. And so you see, divorce is never commanded. It is never to be entered into lightly. And the fact that the Lord waited 700 years before he sent his wife away should tell us something about the level of patience that's required when, um, when your spouse is, is giving you a hard time or perhaps even being unfaithful in a variety of ways. But when it is finally established that there is no other way to win one's spouse from his or her adulterous relationship, God has provided divorce as a gracious alternative to execution and as a means by which the aggrieved or innocent party can be free to remarry. Now, I think there's something else implied in all of this as well, and that is simply this. When a couple in the church... Finds themselves in this situation. Wife, let's, let's, let's just assume that it's your husband who's being immoral, because this is most often the case, not always. What should you do? Well, yes, you should plead. And yes, you should offer biblical reproof. Yes, you should call him to repentance. Yes, you should continue to be a godly wife to that man but if there is no repentance, this is what you say. You say, honey, I love you, but if you don't repent, I'm going to have to talk to our elders. And he may get mad, he may run out, he may throw things, doesn't matter, doesn't matter. If he commands you to not tell the elders, this is what you were to say. You were to say, I understand how you feel, but I must obey God rather than men. Therefore, it is my responsibility to bring the church in. Matthew 18. It is important that I, it is imperative that I obey God's word, even if you don't. I love you. I want you to repent. I want us to work on this marriage. I'd rather us just do counseling. Can we just can we just go to, to get counseling from one of the pastors instead of going to the elders? Please, I don't want to do this, but I will. And ladies, I say that to you because I've seen so many cases where a wife will go so far, so long, so far, so long, and they're involved in a church, and one of two things happen. Either she's too afraid or too embarrassed to go to her elders and ask for help, or secondly, the elders of that church, when she goes, won't help. That's what we saw in 1 Corinthians 5, right? It wasn't that nobody knew the sin, it's that the leaders of the church refused to deal with the sin, and Paul was hot about that. But let me tell you, if you come to the elders of this church, you will be shepherded through this, and hopefully shepherded back into reconciliation with your husband or with your wife, but you will be shepherded. I mean, your elders will be day and night working on this until there's resolution, And if there is no repentance on his part or on her part, then they will guide you through the process that may ultimately end in divorce. But here's the thing. You will not have had to do that alone. The man in your life should be leading you in your family. If your husband, the man in your life, is not leading you in order to be a godly marriage and experience what it's like to be in a marriage that's joyful because you're following the word of God, then if appeals to the man in your marriage produces nothing, then here's the gift of God to you. God has put other men in your life who are over your husband to whom you can appeal. And you should do that. You should do it for the glory of God and for the good of your husband or for the good of your wife who needs to be called to repentance. That's why the church is here. One of the many reasons why the church is here. And oh, I see so many marriages just get to a place where it's hopeless because they never brought to bear God's plan for dealing with sin. That was somewhat of an aside, but not really because I believe so many divorces could be prevented if the biblical parameters for how to deal biblical prescription for how to deal with sin were followed and so come come and and when you come bring all of your problems to Charlie okay <laughs> <laughs> and Charlie will handle them all and you know he might ask me to pray um, I say that jokingly but really, do not hesitate. This is how the church is supposed to function. And it will function here that way. And it'll be good for you and your marriage. And so this is Jesus' teaching on divorce and remarriage. But the text doesn't stop here. It became evident, in the, it becomes evident in the next verse that the disciples really get what Jesus is saying about what this commitment involves. And once you're joined to the wife of your youth, or maybe in your older age, you are joined in this marriage covenant that is supposed to exist and be binding upon your lives through sickness and health, through gladness and anger, through every aspect of your relationship, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, as long as you both do live until death does part us. And the disciples got this. They got it loud and clear. They got the message loud and clear. And um, their response is interesting. Look at beginning with verse 10. And the disciples said to him, if the relationship of a man and wife is like this, it is better not to marry. You see what they're saying? I mean, come on. This is a heavy commitment. What are you laying on us, Jesus? I mean, until death? Wow, that's heavy That's dark. I don't think I... That's commitment. I don't think I'm ready for that. Um, The disciples got the message loud and clear. They realized what Jesus was teaching this was once you get married, you're in it for life. This is not something you can get in and out of at will. It's permanent until death. Divorce is not an option. When a day comes in which the happy feeling is gone and you find yourself... Uh, looking down at your wife or your husband and saying, why did I marry you? I want out. Too late. Too late. You agree. Till death do us part. You say, well, if I'm in a bad marriage, you're saying I'm stuck. You're stuck. Work it out. There's no ejection sheet. Suit. What is it? Seat. There's no... You." Can't. <laughs> My kids love this. They take notes whenever I do that. And then when we get to dinner, they just uh, (laughs) hee-haw. Their favorite one was when I yelled out, uh, Moses, take off your feet because you're on holy ground. (laughs) There is no ripcord. You can't get out of this thing. Not in God's eyes. You've got to work it out. And you know what? So many times, if if a couple who's having problems, if they'll just stay together, just commit to staying together for five more years, if it doesn't work out, then let's talk about what to do next. Probably another five years. But stay together five years. And you know what statistically happens? A couple that's really unhappy with one another and, and they stick it out for five years. At the end of the five years, they forgot that they were unhappy with each other. Because God has a way of changing our hearts. Now, I'm not saying don't, don't do that. Don't endure that. Come, there is help for you. The Word of God has the answers for you. You may just need help bringing them to bear on your marriage. But this is what marriage is. Whether it's good or bad, you're stuck with it. There's a woman who came to counseling one day. She said, when I got in marriage, I was looking for the ideal. When I I married, I married an ordeal, and now I want a new deal. (laughs) But you don't get a new deal. The best deal you're going to get is the person you're married to. And it can be good. It can be good. If you do it God's way, you need to remember in those moments that it was God who put you together and he has provided everything you need to respond in a way that pleases him and brings you joy. Maybe not immediately, but remember Jesus who for the joy set before him endured the cross. And I'm not saying your marriage is your cross. That's not what Jesus is saying at all. It's not about hardship. The cross is not about hardship. It's about taking upon yourself the shame of Christ even unto death. But you should have that attitude for the joy set before me. I will do what's right regardless of how I feel. I will do what's biblical regardless of how I feel. In God's eyes, you're glued together with a strong bond. It can only be broken by the power of death or divorce. And divorce only due exclusively to sexual sin that would require death by the law of God. And so the disciples got this message loud and clear, but they didn't like it. It was frightening to them. You know what their problem was? The same problem young people have today. They're scared to death of commitment. They're just scared to death of commitment. They don't want to be tied down to one person. They want to be free and kind of flit from one relationship to another, from one emotional high to the next. To them, relationships are all about self-gratification and emotion. They hook up with someone and makes them feel good for a little while, and they stay in that relationship as long as it's fun. But when it stops being fun and giving them the warm fuzzies, then they're out. And they may not leave, and I've seen this many times. They may not leave. They may not actually divorce. They just check out. They get a che- separate checking account. You know, they start doing a separate life. Get their own car, get their own checkbook, get their own life. They just are roommates now sharing the expense of the house. And that's crazy. In our age of matchmaking organizations, internet um, internet matchmaking services, eHarmony or eDisharmony or whatever it is, it's become easier than ever to bounce around from relationship to relationship. There's now even something called hyperdating, um, where you can get on the web and through some Internet stuff, I don't know, you can hook up with relationships, different relationships every day, or more than one a day, just for the thrill. Why do people do that? Why do people do that? I mean, for, for a lot of us here, you're thinking... Man, that's like way off the chart. I mean, I can't even imagine that. Well, good. Don't even imagine it. You just, you just stay the course. But we all know people who are like this. And why do people do that? The answer is they're scared to death of commitment. They think a commitment to one person is going to ruin their fulfillment. A commitment to one person is going to ruin their joy. They call it the C word, commitment. And some people don't even want to pronounce the word. I know this may be hard to believe, but years ago, I was a youth pastor. I mean... I, you're, uh, yeah, the young ones are going, boring, right? No, we had a lot of fun back then. I was young, and, and I was better looking. And, <clears throat> and uh, we had a lot of fun in, um, in youth ministry. But one thing I knew about the boys, they'd always joke about the C word. They never wanted to get involved in a commitment to anyone. But they didn't realize that a lifetime of relational fulfillment is only possible in a long-term relationship with one person. Jumping from one relationship to another may be fun for a while, but it's not fulfilling. It's demeaning. And in the end, you're not, you're not going to be left with an enduring fulfillment, but a sense of guilt and rejection. And then you end up spending the rest of your life alone or with some guy who's too spineless to make a commitment to love you for the rest of your life. Don't do that. Don't get involved with somebody like that. Ladies, girls, if he's not willing to make a commitment to you, then you need to get out of that relationship. You should never have been in it in the first place. In fact, don't ever date someone. You as a believer, don't ever date someone who does not have a verifiable history of obedience to the Word of God. If they don't have a verifiable history of obedience to the word of God, then they're off limits for you. Don't go there. You say, well, they have potential. No, they don't. You don't know that. And I'll tell you what I know. Most times that people get into a relationship, a marriage relationship, a boyfriend-girlfriend relationship, then dating and then courting and whatever else they do, and then they get married because the person saw potential, what that really meant was, I can change him. After we get married, I'll change him. And guess what? never happens you have a hard enough time changing yourself thank you (laughs) you have a hard enough time changing yourself there's no way you're going to change that other person guarantee the holy spirit has to do that work and if you try to do it you're just going to get in the way and cause conflict and the marriage won't get any better it gets worse so forget about potential listen if she's not a godly girl now she's not going to be a godly girl then. If you're of age to get married, and he's not a godly guy right now, he's not going to be a godly guy then. Now, can, the God, can God, the Holy Spirit, change his heart? Sure. Can we pray to that end? Sure. But you better never even think about making a commitment to a guy or a girl who is not right now living for Christ and has a verifiable history before he met you a verifiable history that he has been submissive to the Word of God. Talk to their pastor. Anybody want to talk to me after the service about a girl that kind of caught your eye here or vice versa? Just let me know. I'll tell you what I know. This is serious, beloved, because when you enter marriage, oh, it can be the most fulfilling thing in all of your life, but it can be horrific as well. The only thing worse than being single for the rest of your life is marrying the wrong guy, marrying the wrong girl. And if he's not walking with the Lord, he's the wrong one, no matter how attracted to him you may be. Listen, marriage is a gift of God. When two people who are walking in the Spirit, when two people are living in obedience to God's Word, is the most blessed thing in the world. Listen to how the Bible talks about Marriage and the commands it gives, Proverbs 5, 15 through 19. Drink water from your own sister. Now he's talking about physical intimacy here. Drink water from your own cistern and fresh water. That's pure water from your own well. Should your springs be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth as a loving hind and as a graceful doan. Now listen to this. Be exhilarated always with her love. I love that phrase. You know why? Because exhilarated literally in the Hebrew means intoxicated. It's the one place in the Bible meant where you were committed to get you were commanded to get drunk. With the wife with whom you have entered covenant. Be intoxicated by her love and hers alone. That's what marriage should be. It should be intoxicating. I mean 23, 25 years in, you ought to be still looking at each other with starry eyes. If you're walking with the spirit, you're living according to the teaching of the word of God. It'll happen. Proverbs 12:4 An excellent wife is the crown of her husband. Boy, do I know that. I know why you guys hired me. <laughs> She's sitting back there about three pews from the back, all right? A good wife, a godly wife, an excellent wife is the crown of her husband. Proverbs 18, 22. He who finds a a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Proverbs 31, 10. An excellent wife who can find for her worth is far above jewels the heart of her husband trusts in her and he will have no lack of gain. I mean, there are many, many more scriptures we could look at. You know why God hates divorce? Because he made marriage to be so good. You know why your mom or grandma who is such a fantastic cook, you know why she hates McDonald's? (laughs) Because she knows what a meal she has prepared for you. And she wants you to enjoy it to the fullest. That's God's design for marriage. That's God's design for marriage. Lifelong marriage is a beautiful gift from the Lord. And when two people with like precious faith come together in that strong bond, one flesh, work of God kind of relationship, I tell you, there's nothing more fulfilling in all the world. There's nothing more fulfilling in all the world. You say, well, I've been divorced and I am remarried or I'm thinking about being remarried. Is there any hope that we can experience that? Are you kidding Yes. Yes, there is hope. And for you, Romans 8 should be one of the most precious texts, and especially verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God does not condemn you any more for divorce than he does for any sin. You know, why is it that we have elevated the sin of Unbiblical divorce over other sins, as if the sin of divorce is the worst possible one that you can commit. Really? More than murder? I mean, think about Moses, God's man. God led or brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, their salvation experience in the Old Testament, and all of it was led. Those two million people left Egypt following God's man, Moses. And guess what he was? He was a murderer. He wasn't like the Apostle Paul who stood by and carried the coach and became complicitous with murder, but rather he was the one who actually took the man out. He was the one who pulled the trigger. And yet God called him to be the man. Be the man. There is no sin that cannot be forgiven. Are there consequences? No. Yes, dreadful consequences to sin. And the greater the sin, the greater the consequences. And you may have to live with them for the rest of your life. But you know what? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All who have had the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ cover their sin account, they're forgiven. Forgiven. And now if you find yourself in a situation where the marriage is over, the covenant has been broken by divorce, whether it be legitimate or illegitimate. And you're remarried. or you are fixing to be remarried because there is no hope whatsoever of ever restoring that thing? Maybe that, that person is remarried. That definitely seals it. And guess what? You can have a great marriage. You can have a great marriage. But it's got to be God's way this time. It's got to be God's way. And God will bless you like he blesses every repentant sinner, God will bless you. Marriage is a wonderful thing, no matter where you're coming from. You do it God's way, it's the most blessed thing in the world. I remember when I was in, um, in high school and I told my dad, um, I'm never going to get married. And my dad, being the wise man that he was, said, that's stupid. That's <laughs> stupid. Which my philosophies had 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 sound of wisdom, but my father's words were true wisdom. And when I got to uh, when I got to college, I realized how fragile my commitment was, especially that September that uh, a young lady by the name of Christine Schultz showed up on campus, and my resolve began melting away pretty quickly. And I started traveling for the university. They um, put me on a team where I traveled around and, and went to Christian high schools, uh, trying to entice juniors and seniors to come to our university, Christian University. And so I was only home on the weekends. But, but one week while I was gone, the president um, designated a day where the unthinkable would happen. Uh, he designated an open house day. Now, uh, none of the guys... I mean, we all had our kind of mental picture of what the girl's dorm looked like, but nobody could ever get near it. I mean, it was like Ichabod. I mean, it was totally off limits. You just couldn't go anywhere near it. I guess the guys' dorms were really Ichabod. The glory has departed. But uh, he told everybody clean up your dorms for a couple of hours on the designated day. You will be able, the guys will be able to go over and actually see inside behind the veil. You'll be able to see the girl's dorm and the rooms, and how they live, and, and the girls would be able to come over and see your dorms, and very supervised, and, um, and I was gone, and when I got back, um, Chris and I used to meet early in the morning uh, to uh, read and, and pray together, and, and, uh, and we got done one day, and, and she looked up at me, and she said, um, someday I'm going to break it, and I said, what? She said, that, that cup on your desk, I saw it, And I thought, oh, no, she saw my cup. I had a cup, a white cup, and it said, I heart being single. I love being single, which was by that point, it was a total lie. But she said, I'm going to break it. I'm going to smash that cup. So about a year later, I took her up to Lookout Mountain with my guitar. (laughs) And I sang her a song. I got down on one knee, and I asked her to marry me. And I, she knew, I knew that she knew that I was just poor, dead broke. And uh, there was no way I was going to have a ring for her when I asked her to marry me. And so I asked her, and astonishingly, I, I said, will you marry me? And and she said, yes. <laughs> and, uh, and wonderful. And I said, uh, I have something for you. And I pulled out this cup and I had a lid on it. And, uh, and then I gave her a rock. And I said, you always wanted to break the cup, go ahead and break it. So she took the rock and she smashed the cup. And when she smashed it, it was just like on a commercial. You know, the thing broke open just perfect. And, uh, and a little black velvet box kind of tipped out. And she was in shock. Okay, will you marry me didn't shock her, but the fact that I had a ring waiting for her was a huge shock. And I said, well, aren't you going to open it? And she opened it, and there was her ring, which she's wearing today. And a few months later, we were married. It's been 23 years now. And I don't know about you other married folks, but when I look back on those years and remember the blessed joys of marriage, it kind of makes me think that the disciples of Jesus were missing the whole point. I love being married. I love being married to the wife of my youth. I love being married to a godly woman who loves Jesus more than she loves me. I love being married to a a woman who's given me wonderful children. There is no one in the world I would want to spend my life with than the one God has given me. Yes, marriage has its challenges. Yes, even in our marriages, we've had really hard, hard days and weeks where it was excruciatingly hard But oh, the joy of forgiveness. Oh, the joy of restoration. I mean, I've often, well, not often, but a couple of occasions, told my wife, I love my job. I love being the pastor of Calvary Bible Church. I've been here for 16 years. There is nothing else in the world I want to do than be here doing this with you. But if my career, my job, my pastoral ministry ever got between Me and you, I quit it in a heartbeat. I'd quit my job. I love my wife more than I love my children. And I think I'd be be willing to die for my children if necessary. I think. (laughs) But I wouldn't let them come between me and my wife. The disciples almost missed all of that. The joy of being married to one woman for the long haul and all the fulfillment and joy that comes from being a blessed married couple. The disciples thought this kind of standard of commitment was caused to remain single, but they missed the point. Notice Jesus' response in verse 11. But he said to them, not all men can accept this statement that is about being single. Their statement about being single. Not all people, not all men can remain single. But only those to whom it has been given. And Paul will pick up on that statement and say, this is a gift, a gift of singleness. Um, as, as younger men in college, um, you know, we tease one another about uh, you know, hanging out with the girls too much. And I, and I, and I asked uh, Mike Nichols, our missionary, right? Um, asked him about one of our friends, why, why is he always hanging out with the girls? And he said, He doesn't have the gift, brother. He doesn't have the gift. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, neither did he or I. Verse 12 For there are eunuchs, single men, who were born that way from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men and there are also eunuchs who have been who've made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven he who is able to accept this let him accept it there are some uh, Jesus is saying not everybody who can not everybody can handle being single there are some who were born without a natural desire burning in their bosom to be single there are others who have been castrated in order to prevent them from developing the normal male desires and there are a few who have chosen to remain single for the glory of God. And Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 7, that's a special gift. But this is not for everyone. And it's probably not for most of the disciples either. Most men can't handle singleness. And most women can't either. God has put it within us, this strong desire to be united to, in, in, in a kind of strong bond, one flesh relationship That we would be miserable without the gift and the benefits of marriage. In fact, most people would be tempted, tempted nearly to the limits of what they could handle if they were required to remain single or tempted on their own. And so Jesus is saying, and Paul is saying, marriage is a good thing. Singleness isn't for everybody. And we know Peter got the message. In fact, he understood this i think even before jesus said it because we knew he was we know he was married um we know that from the gospel of mark because one day we found out that um jesus went into peter's house and discovered that peter's mother-in-law was sick with a terrible fever and he healed her and we also have statements like paul later saying Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Peter? And so all of those people had gotten married. And so clearly a number, at least a number, maybe all of the apostles had gotten married. The point of all of this is don't ever think of marriage as something that's not good. If it's not good for you, then we need to work on fixing that. There's a way to fix it. It's called repentance. And it doesn't have to be a gut-wrenching kind of deal. You can get through it a lot quicker than you think you can. You can be helped a lot better than you think you can. There are more answers than you can imagine there being. You say, but you don't understand my problem. My answer to that would be, you don't understand God's word. God's word and God's spirit brought to bear on the heart of a child of God can do everything that God wants done. Don't shortchange yourself. You may need help. And praise God, you're in a church that provides that help in powerful ways and freely, freely. So what have we said so far? Simply this, that marriage is the covenantal commitment to mutual love and mutual companionship between a man and a woman for life. It is never to be entered into lightly. And divorce is never an option unless one partner moves into into Some kind of hard-hearted, unrepentant, adulterous relationship or lifestyle. As someone may ask, well then, that's a pretty simplistic idea of marriage, but what about people like me who have already blown the ideal? What about a person who came to Christ after they were married and their unbelieving spouse abandons them? What about someone who has been married several times? Who do they belong to now? And What do they do now? Should I remain single? Can I remarry? Should I go back and try to reconcile with my former spouse, even though we have been divorced for years? Does the word of God speak to any of these issues? And the answer to that question is every one of them in specific. And that's what 1 Corinthians 7 is for. And so if you want the answers to those questions, you're just going to have to come back in two weeks. I'll be gone next week. Brent will be here preaching through the Sermon on the Mount again. And so the answer is yes. God provides answers for all of these questions. And the answers all lead to one thing, a marriage that glorifies God in the joy of his people. When two people begin loving each other biblically and forgiving each other biblically and loving each other biblically and forgiving each other biblically, biblically. There's joy. There's fulfillment for a lifetime. There's everything that God intended for you to experience from the very beginning. Isn't that wonderful? I love the Word of God. The Word of God is a lamp to our feet and a light unto our path. We run into trouble every time we disregard it. God's Word has the answers. The only question is, Are we willing to do it his way? Let's pray. Father, we give you praise and thanks for this, your book. is everything we need pertaining to life and godliness so that we can be the kind of men and women that you created us to be and enjoy the kind of marriages you created us to enjoy. And so, Father, I pray for everyone hearing my voice right now that they would have an introspective heart to see whether they are pursuing marriage or living in marriage in a way that pleases you. No, oh, Father, I pray that you would graciously call us to repentance and blessing for your great glory and for our own great joy. We pray it in Jesus' name.